Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look among the living, among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told the told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in keeping with the video we just watched and the scripture we just read, I have the great privilege on this Resurrection Sunday of announcing... The good news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and through his resurrection, he has demonstrated his ultimate power over all other powers, especially the powers of sin and evil and death, both the way those powers live within each one of us and the way those powers are unleashed in this world. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he took on those powers and those powerful opponents and he defeated them. The darkness of Good Friday, when it looked as though once again sin and evil and death was going to prevail, has given way to the brightness of Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus' resurrection confirms that his death was far more than just another Roman execution of just another insurgent. His resurrection proves there is no power greater than him. Jesus confronted death, what one writer calls the regular weapon of the tyrant. And he conquered it, demonstrating once and for all his supremacy over every other power, over every other force, every other ruler, every other threat. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And Paul goes on to say that if Christ has not been raised, then he, Paul, and all who proclaim He did rise from the dead, which I suppose includes me, are false witnesses about God. And under Jewish law, false witnesses about God face the dreadful prospect of execution by stoning, which does not excite me on this bright Easter morning. So we'll move on. It is equally my privilege today, as the video stated and the scripture illustrated, to invite every single person here to give their allegiance to Jesus, the resurrected King, and to trust Him as their King and their Savior. Because in Him is life, real life, life to the fullest, meaning life the way it was intended to be experienced, life right now, the way God designed it to be lived, with God and under God. A life of humility, a life of grace, a life of love and service. A good life that never ends. And this abundant life in the power of the resurrected 
Jesus, according to the Bible, begins when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus the King. And so I would unapologetically invite every single one of us to trust in Jesus and follow him as our king. But let's be real about this. It is not easy to believe a first century Jewish man who was confirmed to be dead woke up a couple of days later and walked out of his tomb. I mean, I don't care who we are. It is easier to not believe this because it is improbable. It stretches the capacity of even the wildest imagination, especially in today's unenchanted world where the mysteries and wonders of life and of the supernatural are treated like viruses we must purge out of the culture's memory. In this unenchanted world, the law says if we can't see and hear and touch and prove through scientific observation, then we not only can't believe, we shouldn't believe, for it would be delusional to believe. This is what one philosopher calls immanentization, which is far too difficult of a word to say this early in the morning, or ever. He explains it as this, the framing of our lives within an enclosed, self-sufficient, natural order without any reference to the supernatural or to transcendence. In simple terms, what we see is all there is and there ain't no more. One author describes today's world as a world flattened by disenchantment, an unenchanted world. So here's the thing. Unbelief in the resurrection is understandable because the resurrection defies logic and physics and natural law. And it defies billions of experiential data. Every single person who has ever lived has eventually died and not a single one of them has ever permanently returned. Unbelief is understandable. One of the things I love about the resurrection story in Luke chapter 24 is that none, not a one of Jesus' disciples believed he had risen from the dead. They'd been with him for three years. They had watched with their own eyes when he bent the rules of science and nature. They had seen him with their own eyes calm a stormy sea and heal many diseased bodies. Not to mention, he told them he was going to suffer and die, and he told them repeatedly that after he had suffered and died, on the third day, he would rise from the dead. But on the Sunday morning after Jesus died, a few women who were his disciples went to his tomb and they went there to embalm his dead body. They didn't believe he would rise. After they discovered the empty grave and heard the angel's instructions, they ran off to tell the 11 disciples and the other friends of Jesus. And Luke 24:11 says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I like that that is in the Bible. News of a resurrected dead guy seemed to them like nonsense. These are real people. These are real people trying to make sense of the inscrutable and the unimaginable. Unbelief is understandable. 
Now, it's not that we don't like comeback stories. We love comeback stories or resurrection stories. We want comeback stories and resurrection stories to happen and to be true. When Tiger Woods tapped in his bogey putt on the 18th green last weekend to win the Masters Golf Tournament, we witnessed a comeback of epic proportions. Dare I say, a resurrection of sorts. Out of the rubble of moral failure and physical deterioration, Tiger once again is the king of the golfing world. We love comeback stories. But see, we actually watched Tiger last weekend. We know Tiger Woods exists. We know how bad things were in his life. We know how chewed to pieces his back was. And we know because we watched it or we read about it, he won the tournament last weekend. So we believe. But it's hard to believe a man walked out of a grave 2,000 years ago after being confirmed dead. And our unbelief is understandable. The disciples of Jesus themselves did not believe, at least initially. In the resurrection story, heaven and earth are intertwined. They intersect all the time. Flesh and blood humans have conversations with bright shining angels. A brand new tomb, freshly cut into the hill, houses the body of a crucified Jew, another victim of Roman power. But somehow the massive stone covering the opening of the tomb is rolled back and the body that was inside on Friday is not inside now. Heaven and earth intertwined and intersecting. And the whole thing seemed like nonsense to these disciples, as it may to us. But somewhere in the depths of their being, the nonsense of heaven and earth intersecting produced a flicker of curiosity about what was unfolding. When the women saw the stone rolled back and the body missing, Luke says they wondered about this. A flicker of curiosity, a faint spark of, hmm. After the angels tell the women Jesus is risen, just as he had told them he would rise, Luke says the women remembered his words. A flicker of curiosity about what is unfolding. When the apostle Peter heard the news of the empty tomb, his curiosity erupted in an inferno. Luke says he got up and ran to the tomb. He bent over, he walked in, and he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves. And he went away, Luke says, wondering to himself what had happened. A flicker of curiosity. We all occasionally see something or feel something or have an experience that ignites our curiosity. A strange or beautiful sight or experience that just doesn't quite fit inside the unenchanted world we have constructed. For lack of a better way of putting it, heaven meets earth in some unexpected way and the result, the scene, the product, the beauty, the wonder doesn't fit in an enclosed, self-sufficient, purely naturalistic world. Curiosity stirs somewhere deep inside us and we wonder, however faintly, if there is more going on. Our minds simply cannot deny the pull we feel in our hearts. Something is happening. 
the experience that has awakened our curiosity is like a portal leading beyond our enclosed and self-sufficient world. One writer calls this cross-pressure. Not religious cross, but cross-pressure as in the pressure of experiencing what seems like heaven when we only believe in earth. Our heads say, this is all there is and there ain't no more. But our hearts say, I think there is something more. Julian, Julian Barnes, in uh, his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, captures this cross-pressure conflict Right at the beginning of his book, it begins this way. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This past January, Julie surprised me one Sunday afternoon for my birthday. We jumped in the car and we drove to the Bay Area. We walked into a stranger's house and about an hour later, we walked out with a six-week-old English lab puppy. So this was Gus on the first day we got him. Just a sidebar. The absolute most disgraceful technique of crowd manipulation is to show pictures of a cute dog, second only to pictures of babies. So I apologize up front. It's just unfair. We're in, uh, this was shortly after we got him, but when we were there, I was holding him at the, the people's house. We didn't know these folks. Just terribly unfair, terribly cruel. I'm holding Gus in my arms, and Julie looks at me and she says, well, what do you think? Do you want him? No, let's go get a sandwich. Let's leave him here. This is Gus not long ago in the backyard. I was sitting out there. It's really hard for me to say no to him for some reason, but you probably get the idea. And this is him saying to me, stop reading. Let's play. He's a great dog. The other day I took Gus to a field with a pond near our house. I had a leash that extended to 16 feet. He'd been on walks before, been in the car before, but the majority of his five months of life had been spent within the four walls of our house, within our fenced-in backyard, and at night in his crate. So we got to this field, and we got around this pond, and he immediately buried his nose in the high grass, in the weeds, and in the dirt, and I could hear him sniffing and snorting as he absorbed this new world he did not realize existed. Occasionally, as he's going along, he'd look back at me, and then occasionally he would trot about halfway back to me, almost for reassurance, and then he would return to the end of the leash and the array of aromas and sights and sounds. He was tentative at first. I mean, he loved it, but I could tell he was nervous. He saw some ducks sitting on the pond, and they started quacking. And he sort of stared at them. And then he did that familiar canine tilt of the head kind of a thing. And he just sort of walked slowly toward them. All of this was new. Never seen this world before. But then something happened in Gus. And I could see it with my own two eyes. His tail started to wag really fast. He didn't look back at me anymore. He just lived out near the end of the leash. He started sprinting through the high grass, back and forth, out at the far reaches of the leash. I unhooked him for a while, and he just darted and dove through the high grass, loving every second of it. He had discovered a new world, and he could not contain himself. It was as though he was saying to me, I thought the world was a crate, that boring kibble you shove in front of me every day, and your smelly shoe. I had no idea 
beyond the backyard fence, there was a magnificent world like this. What is happening to these disciples on Resurrection Sunday is what happened to Gus in that field. A whole new world was opening up to them. A world where God was king. Unbelief in things like resurrection is understandable in a world stripped of the supernatural. When the world is enclosed, self-sufficient, fenced in, backyard, where the only sights and sounds and smells are the ones we already know and we can already name, it's hard to believe in sights and sounds and smells that are coming from another world. But the resurrection is a profound announcement about the reality of another world, a bigger world, what we would call a God-bathed world. And could it be that those occasional flickers of curiosity we all have are God's way of inviting us beyond the fence line of our own self-sufficient enclosed world. The Bible proclaims in Jesus Christ, God returned to be king of his people, and on the day his tomb was empty, literally a new world began, set ablaze, with the power of God. And ever since that first Resurrection Sunday, billions of people have had some kind of experience with this risen Jesus to cause them to devote the rest of their lives to Him. Something about the whole thing, improbable as it is, unbelievable as it is, nonsensical as it sounds, ignites curiosity. It turns our head And it warrants a closer look. Recently, the whole world watched in sadness as Notre Dame Cathedral burned in Paris. The devastation was incredible. This iconic image will likely remind the world of this tragedy for a long time to come. But this third picture is especially noteworthy. Scores of people watching the cathedral burn. Heartbroken feeling a loss, even though many, undoubtedly, standing there watching it burn with a broken heart, believe only in earth and struggle mightily to believe there's anything more. In the words of one writer, the scene in Paris reminds us the most secular of us all are haunted by transcendence. I believe deep within us we ache for something grand, something mysterious, something that is beyond our comprehensive powers, something beyond the fences we construct to frame in our world and frame in our lives, something impossible to codify, simplify, or verify with microscopes or telescopes or experiments. The resurrection of Jesus is the profound moment in history when heaven and earth intersected and intertwined. And I simply cannot stress enough, like the disciples and billions of people since, it is worth turning our head to take a second look. Something happened in the resurrection that ultimately satisfies the deep ache in our souls. When Jesus rose... The world changed forever. The power of evil, the power of sin, and the power of death was broken. 
And a new world began. A world unchained to the inevitabilities of sin and evil and death. A world where Jesus was king. And finally, at last, there was real hope. And I think most of us hunger for real hope. Especially in these crazy times in which we are living. We prayed earlier for what happened in Sri Lanka today. That kind of thing is awful, it's tragic, and it's going on all over the world all the time. We hunger for real hope. The constant conflict we hear about, read about, the division in our own country, the violence that breaks out all the time, the insatiable thirst for power. We live in angry times. Attack mode has become the default setting. Striking out and lashing out at whomever and whatever disagrees with our idea or thwarts our agenda. And I believe more and more people see the emptiness of this and see the emptiness of this path. And we crave real hope. We want to hope in something worthy of our hope. Something that is substantial. Something that is thick. Something that is solid. Something when leaned against, it won't slide away. Something when stood upon, it won't collapse. Politics and politicians, money, pleasure, all of it, lacks substance. None of it worthy of real hope. I was driving yesterday uh, through one of the neighborhoods on my way somewhere, and I saw an older woman walking on the sidewalk in the opposite direction I was driving. She was coming toward me. She had gray hair, like someone else I know. Her gray hair seemed to fit her. It went perfectly with the overcast day. She was walking into the wind, and each of her hands were holding the hand of what I presumed to be one of her grandchildren. And a third grandchild was untethered. You know how that is. So he kind of zigzagged and wandered. And it all looked kind of chaotic. But for reasons I cannot explain, I found it so substantial. And so hopeful. Just a grandma walking into the wind with her three grandchildren on an overcast day. And the whole picture just struck me as good. Simple. And again, for reasons I don't understand, hopeful. The Bible talks about living hope. Such an interesting phrase. It's difference-making hope, even in the midst of the uncertainties of life, and there are many uncertainties. Living hope says, no matter what, because Jesus is the resurrected King, all will eventually be well. He conquered the great enemy known as death. He's alive right now. So whatever the circumstances might be, because of Jesus, I can trust him, and all will one day be well, even if it isn't well right now. See, in the resurrection of Jesus, God began to restore the world and make it right. Restore it to how it is supposed to be. And someday the power and the goodness displayed in the resurrection will flow over every single problem and into every corner of the universe. And on that day, the Bible says there will be no more pain, no more death, no more abuse, No more explosions, no more bombs, no more loneliness, insecurity, fear, hate, poverty, violence, 
racism, no more tears. The hope we have today, however faint it may be, will one day be realized, and then some. See, Jesus Christ is worthy of our hope. His resurrection makes hope in him make sense. Nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is greater than he is. We in the world, through the strongest thing we could at him, called the tyrant of death, and he conquered it. And our heads are not in the sand in saying this. Pain is real. Cancer happens. Tragedy happens. Marriages don't work out. Families still fight and bombs go off. But Jesus has risen and he has risen indeed. So the tide has turned. The comeback has started. And one day the victory that was won at the tomb of Jesus will cascade down and in and through every nook and cranny and corner of this universe and all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will finally and at last be well. No more pain. No more death. No more abuse. No more loneliness. No more insecurity. No more not good enough. No missing parts or pieces. And no tears. And today we celebrate the dramatic beginning of that new and good world. And so today is a day for a party. And not a little party. This is a day for corks to be popping all day long. This is a day for good food. This is a day to ignore how many points Weight Watchers says you can have. This is a day to ignore the keto plan and eat the french fries. This is a day to laugh and celebrate deep into the night. This is a day for dessert before the meal, in the middle of the meal, at the end of the meal, and yes, even in place of the meal. (laughs) Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He conquered it. And a new world actually began When he walked out of the grave, it's not fully here yet, but it is coming. And Jesus can be trusted. He's worthy of our hope. He is substantial. He is thick. He is reliable. And he is so very good. Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we gather together here today with a joy deep within us at this hope. We only understand a sliver of it. We will never understand the totality of it. We are incapable of grasping the magnificence of it. We just get a taste. We just have an hors d'oeuvre, an appetizer of this new and beautiful world you began to restore 2,000 years ago when the tomb was empty. And this has profound implications for every last one of us sitting here today. Implications that you will show us if we are curious enough to turn aside and consider. We thank you for this great hope. We thank you for the joy that we have in you. We thank you that we can celebrate with confidence that you are alive And you are king. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.